Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lewis and Kyle Show. If you're new here, welcome. We are glad to have you. The Lewis and Kyle Show is an interview podcast. We've been doing it since March 2020. Over 100 episodes published. Pretty awesome, if you ask me. There's a whole gallery now of awesome interviews with entrepreneurs, investors, authors, and thought leaders in a huge variety of subjects. Check out those episodes. They're pretty sweet. But today's episode is also pretty sweet. We have Richard Draper on the show. Richard is the co-founder of a company called Koya. They are a community-driven platform to help people buy, collect, and trade fractions linked to iconic assets, and that's backed by NFTs. We cover in this conversation alternative investing in fractional collectibles. That's categories like whiskey, watches, fraction of classic vehicles, and a whole lot of other categories. We discuss Richard's career going from banking and high finance, working at hedge funds, et cetera, to now starting Koya. Obviously, that gets into the founding story of Koya, why he started it, what their business is, how they do well, et cetera, the implications of collateral, using NFTs as collateral to be specifically, and uh, as always, a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm going to switch to it now. Richard, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. Very excited to be recording today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. I want to start out with a fun, kind of easy question, maybe. And you have a platform that allows people to invest in all sorts of alternative asset classes. And this would probably usually be a bonus question, uh, but I'll start out with it just to get us all in a good mood. And you specifically have a lot of investments in, in watches and wine and, and, and fine dark lookers. I don't know if there's a more appropriate term for that category, but what would be your favorite item kind of budgets be damned to personally own in each of those three categories? Well, it's a tricky one. And obviously I'd say what's on, already on the platform, but I think on the watch side, an FP Jean for me um, would be sort of one of my grail watches, um, 100%. Um, I think in terms of the whiskey side, I'm not a huge whiskey drinker, but I do appreciate certainly some of the Japanese bottles. Um, particularly the geishas, so like some of the artwork on those are just incredible. And a lot of these distilleries are now like ghost distilleries. Um, so they're not producing any more liquor. And, you know, I think there's something really special about that, um, as well. And probably on the digital side, if we go down the NFT route, um, I'm very biased, but I'd probably say. What did you say? What was that last one? I shouldn't hear you. A moonbird. Yeah, moonbird. Okay. 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 Yeah. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit, Richard, about how you got to, uh, Koya and kind of what your path has been maybe since, um, since college, but we looked at your LinkedIn and it seems like you had a, an interesting high school experience as well. You're, you're a chef. So maybe start there. Yeah. Okay. So going way back, um, to school, didn't really know what, what I'd do when, when I was, you know, growing up. Um, so I did a short stint as a, a chef. It was pretty common in Europe to do a gap year and you go and work, um, and also do a bit of traveling. So I did a, a short stint for about six months as a chef in a chalet in France. And then I went and did about another six months on a boat, one of these super yachts down the south of France. So I was basically just a cleaner, what you call a deckhand. So out in the sun, sort of enjoying myself and uh, sort of looking after the boat. So after leaving school, I went to study business uh, and I had always been really passionate and interested in financial services and trading. And um, I knew at that stage that I wanted to sort of focus on that in a bit more detail. I'd always been trading around um, sort of single line stocks um, from a pretty young age. Uh, and then I got a job at, at UBS, so one of the large banks here in Europe. And I did about a year in the asset management team before doing a summer internship over their investment bank. And after that, uh, I got a job at Barclays in their wealth management business on their graduate program. And that involved rotating around the private bank. And I ended up on an internal sales trading desk. So the desk essentially deals with the ultra net worth family office clients and also those that are more sophisticated. So let's say hedge fund managers that are also trading on their own account. 
So I did that for a number of years and studied the CFAs, so the Char Chartered Financial Analyst exams while I was there. Really enjoyed that, but wanted to pivot more into a, I guess, more serious trading role. Um, so after doing that, I went over to a hedge fund. So it was a European, a European event driven firm. So long, short, um, sort of equity book, as well as lots of debt and, and sort of a variety of things, um, but primarily focused in Europe. Um, some really interesting sort of uh, trades throughout that two and a half year period. And I mean, it's worth just going back maybe to the, my first exposure to collectibles. That was probably in the wealth management business, like seeing these clients and chatting to them about cars and watches and art. Just as a, a casual side conversation, I really realized at that point that actually this was a thing, uh, but most people just don't have access to it. Um, so I left that in middle of 2020 during the pandemic, always wanted to start my own business as well, and um, was looking for co-founders. And myself and two other co-founders met online during the pandemic. Um, so Iris and Ben, um, so we're sort of equal partners in the business. And both, uh, both of them have like a lot of startup and, and experience in this sort of space that helped she was the first employee at Challenger Bank um, in Hong Kong and grew the team from zero to, to quite a large number and then set up their European office. And Ben has been working in startups and uh, also loved banks for a number of years. So he's our, our CTO. So I think together we were looking for you know, an idea that was sort of finance related, but we didn't just want to do another investing app or an educational platform. We wanted something that was really different. And we thought the best way of doing that was actually to tap into people's passions. And of course, there were a couple of platforms already in the US, like Rally Road and Masterworks, but it hadn't really come to Europe yet, either in the UK or, or mainland Europe. That, you know, there's a couple of very early stage people now, but at the time, there really wasn't anything going on in the market. And we thought it was a really interesting way of tapping into people's passion and getting them more excited about investing and letting them, I guess, engage with things they know and understand more than something you know tr traditional like an index fund that maybe is a bit abstract to a lot of people. Uh, and we think there's certainly a place in, in people's portfolios for alternatives in addition to this, you know, more traditional asset classes. So, yeah, that's sort of how we got here. And we've been doing it just every year now. We raised some money from um, VCs uh, before Christmas, and we're still very much in early sort of, sort of trying to find tentative product market fit stage, testing some assets, trialing lots of marketing channels and just seeing what really resonates with our users. What do you think was kind of the delay for Europe, UK to try this fractional model that's kind of been at least popular in the United States in terms of maybe like cultural awareness, I don't know, in terms of like asset allocation and if it's actually like a meaningful market capture, but at least it's something a lot of people seem to be aware of. So what do you think has been like hurdles to people catching up with bringing it to that market? Yeah, I think there's two main things. One, I think investing is just more ingrained in the American psyche. You know, it's, it's much more, it's talked about, it's open, it's always on TV. It's sort of, you know, even from a young age, and I, I guess you guys know this much better than I do, but it feels like it's just part of everyday life. Whereas in Europe, things feel a lot more conservative. It's something you wouldn't necessarily speak of, speak about sort of as openly that's starting to change, but it wasn't really a thing. So I think that's, it's one is definitely cultural. Uh, two is regulatory. So the Reg A Plus framework after the Jobs Act in the US obviously sort of opened up the market, particularly for the likes of Rally and, and, and Masterworks. But we haven't really had that in Europe. So there's a number of regulatory challenges and those are different from the UK to mainland Europe. So the market is very fragmented. And we actually started out looking at sort of, I guess, the most equivalent regulation to Reg A in Europe, which would be the crowdfunding regulations. But even that's got a number of hurdles. Um, and that's why we've decided to structure the business using Web3 and NFTs. And, and I can go into that in a bit more detail. But um, for us, it, it, it solves a number of problems. And one of them is, is the regulatory issue. So 
how would you describe what Koya does? So like assume the person you're talking to, you know, has used a traditional brokerage before they've bought stocks, but maybe that's like the extent of their kind of taking their finances and investing into their own hands besides like buying like a house or something. Yeah. So we enable anyone to buy, collect and trade fractions of iconic assets. And what that means is we'll take an asset, let's say a fine watch or, you know, the car you had on, on the post from the wall as a child, and we let you buy a fraction of that. And that fraction is an NFT, which is a visual representation of that asset. And by buying the NFT, you can either vote on when the asset's sold or, and if it's sold in the future, you can exchange the NFT for the cash proceeds, or you can trade the NFT with someone else on a third party marketplace like OpenSea or soon on our own marketplace once we launch it later this year. I got a lot of questions. One big problem that I see with asset backed NFTs is the, like you are effectively the custodian of an asset in which you cannot be a hundred percent sure of the owner because the, you know, if, if you, if you sell it on OpenSea, I, as a decentralized identity can buy that right to to that portion of that asset. And so how, how are you getting around that, like that hurdle with not knowing who owns the asset that you are the custodian of. Yeah. So, and how do you think about that question in general? Yeah. So I think you could take it two ways. Either we could actually have a very closed platform and we could do a closed ecosystem NFT platform and for fundamental, you know, that wouldn't necessarily then be any different from the likes of rally in, in that respect, you know, we could right. very much control that on, you know, user onboarding experience and keep it very closed. We don't like that approach. We prefer the more open Web3 and, you know, I think we can, there's a lot of things we can leverage using um, NFTs that are open in the world. I think in terms of ultimately, let's say, you know, you sell the NFT to someone else, we can still control that because at the end of the day, the user still has to come back to us. And at that point we can do KYC and things like that to exchange cash if we are required to. So there is some control in the journey when we're exchanging the asset for cash at the end. Um, but in theory before then it can, as you say, just be, be openly traded. And I actually think that's, that's great. It's really accessible to everyone and we're not really putting any impediments or hurdles in people's way. So on the flip side, if you're the decentralized identity could, once the asset has been sold to, let's say there's an individual collector who buys the Rolex from the vault and now they own it. And so now you as a platform, you know, are liable to distribute whatever cash value to the holders. Could someone just trade the NFT after the sale and kind of say that its value is essentially like a state, not quite like a stable coin, but they could just sell the NFT on the secondary marketplace to someone else saying this gift card or however you want to account it is worth $50 because the fraction of this thing was just sold. And this is like a $50 coupon to the Koya marketplace, essentially. Is that viable or? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially what it is. So you could, if you don't want to exchange, you can just, you know, sell it to someone else and they can then come and sort of collect the proceeds. I think, you know, we, there's, of course, things might change over time in terms of, do we want to put a time limit on this? Or do we want to only allow, you know, a snapshot of those wallets to actually claim it so you can't then transfer it. Um, but at the moment, I think we're, we're very much open to that. And, you know, as long as our community is engaged, realistically, I think they'll be inclined to come back to us anyway. And at the point that the NFT is essentially exchanged for the cash, it will be burnt. So you won't be able to then sell it on to someone else and say there's still cash attributed to it when there isn't anymore. How are your assets being safeguarded? Yeah, so at the moment we're using third-party storage facilities. So Whiskey, for example, we use uh, London City Bond. So they're one of the biggest bonded warehouses in the UK. I mean, the UK actually for this sort of thing is pretty good because there's a very 
long established infrastructure, particularly on the wine and whiskey side. There's also tons of car storage um, providers and things like that um, for watches uh, and things like that that are smaller. We use safety deposit boxes. I think over the next sort of five to six months, we're going to be moving to a um, just one storage provider. So I can't give them the name, but they essentially provide um, all the storage and logistics for auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's. And that's really nice because there's a very clear audit trail then. We give the asset to them, they log it in, and no one can touch that, right? It's 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 all on the books. It's all recorded and, you know, of course, insured within that facility as well. I think there's a clear connection between your interests with uh, NFT Phi and and Koya. Could you talk a little bit about the potential long-term integration of like these two concepts? Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who doesn't know, NiftFi or NFT Phi is a lending platform. So people can lock an NFT into their platform and essentially borrow money against that. So they're opening up financing for people who might not have had access to traditional financing. Maybe that's to pay for, you know, a real world expense, such as a mortgage or going to, or maybe it's just to leverage up a portfolio and buy more NFTs. So there's a, a, quite a big cross-section of, of user profiles there. What I think is really interesting though, is that as more and more assets come on chain, a lot of them will be represented in NFT form. And using products and platforms like Niftify will enable people to get credit and leverage using these assets that historically people just wouldn't lend against. I mean, there is a precedent for private clients in, say, a wealth manager to be able to go and borrow money against their Picasso paintings in the house and then go and invest that in their stock portfolio, right? It's a commonly done thing, but it's not accessible at the moment to most people. I think in terms of the synergies and fusion longer term with the likes of Coya, well, these sort of assets, collectibles, where we're starting, have, you know, people have a lot of cash tied up in these things. And if you can leverage against them, that will be extremely interesting for a lot of people. And I, I mean, it's a bit of a dirty word, but I'm mean, from broking as well. You know, it's a similar sort of concept. If people have an asset that they say they want to temporarily sort of get some, some capital against, they could use something like Niftify and Quora in combination to, I guess, leverage against that. It's a really interesting concept. Yeah, I've been fascinated with with the concept for a long time because I was, I'm very interested in tokenized real estate long term. And I think um, it sort of like reverses the the way in which you get debt, where you get you, you get debt on the asset after you purchased it rather than before. Uh, with NFT Fi, this is just a question because I'm unfamiliar. Does the um, the asset backed NFT enter into a um, smart contract escrow account, or do you continue to hold it because uh, like? Upon non-payment of that loan, there has to be an auto-enforceable way for NFTFi to retrieve that asset in order to, you know, cover or, or uh, yeah, cover their ass against that that default risk. So, how does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So, exactly as you said, it goes into a gets locked in a smart contract, essentially an escrow, and if you default, it automatically gets transferred to another party. There's an interesting dynamic here as well because it's almost it almost provides a put option as well. If if you think, let's say the NFT market was going to tank, you could, you know, borrow against an asset you have and hope, you know, and if it goes down, as long as it's gone down more than your loan to value that you've got capital on, you've essentially made money. It's still a free put option. Um so there's some other ways you could, I guess, use that protocol, but absolutely. So, you know, if if I don't pay back and I default my loan then my, my NFT would be transferred to, to you as a lender.
Yeah, I think there's going to be like a lot of interesting, there probably already has been, financialization of you know, people using volatile collateral. I think that's just going to be a whole interesting thing for a lot of people to play around with and hopefully not blow things up too badly kind of in this whole category. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the, the biggest challenges at the moment with, with anything like this is around determining you know, an accurate price, essentially, like looking at all the, I mean, with fungible tokens, it's easy. I mean, NFTX is an example. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but you know, you, you lock one or multiple NFTs in a vault and then they issue fungible tokens. And, and that's one way of, I guess, getting visibility and transparency around where a floor price should be, as well as providing some liquidity. And then you can go and use those tokens to do all sorts of other things. But it's these unique characteristics, and it's similar to the collectible market where you might have two watches that look identical, but the provenance is very different. Maybe one's got, you know, a dial that's slightly different. And there's all these nuances that people who, unless you're into it, you just don't understand. And it's the same with NFTs, right? You know, different attributes and things like that. So figuring out how we price these things more accurately, and I know lots of people are working on this. I think that's, you know, an important step along the way. Um, and then, as you say, you can go into sort of crazy financialization of, of all sorts of assets um, once you've got that. Yeah, I think that it has to be like a crypto oracle third party network that is constantly giving a price because uh, and additionally, the the lending piece of it, it provides a, a pricing mechanism as well. But that comp or the lending side has to have you know, some third party perspective on price in order to, because like with real estate, it's the appraiser, right? And, and there's a huge industry of appraising real estate and commercial real estate, but you have, you need to have, or somebody needs to create a decentralized appraisal service for these assets so that that debt isn't wildly inaccurate and nobody gets away with, uh, whatever you'd call it a heist. <laughs> I was yeah. just going to say, it's one of the, the good things about most things being on chain, of course, like that things are visible, right? And it's a lot easier to do a lot of that work. If we're talking about solely digital assets, of course, that, that is more problematic when you then tie the real world assets to, to NFTs. So my question is pretty like just straightforward. What are the current like statuses of these two projects in terms of like realize like is everything we've described currently something someone could go on and do? Are there like pieces that haven't fallen into place quite yet? What are like, where's Koya in terms of implementation? People have bought fractions of assets, sold those fractions secondarily to other people already. And you as a platform have also exited some of those. Have like all of those things already happened successfully? So we're still very much in, I guess, a soft launch phase at the moment. So we've dropped some assets on the website and users are sort of trading those that can trade them already on, let's say, OpenSea. So all the NFTs are on Polygon, so gas is, is negligible. And we did a trial asset earlier in the summer and we exited that. It was a, a case of wine, which on Rothschild. And that was with a sort of closed group of, of beta users. Uh, and we closed that out sort of plus 13%. So the assets at the moment, we haven't gone through a fully full exit cycle using the NFT sort of structure yet, um, but we're hopeful that will come in the next six to 12 months. Um, but really we're just in that, as I mentioned earlier, I guess the mode of trialing more assets and starting to scale up. And what about NFT fi Yeah. So, I mean, my involvement there is, is mainly on the, the content side. So sort of one of the community mm -hmm. ambassadors and work with the team, just helping sort of, I guess, engage and chat to people in the space and also do some, some ad hoc content with them. Um, I think they've hit around 200 million in terms of loans now very recently on the platform being issued. And I mean, I'm, the easiest way to check on their progress, I guess, is they've got a new June analytics dashboard. So you can check that out. Um, and most of the key metrics are on that. In V3, it's pretty crazy. I like it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of innovation happening in space. I mean, they're not alone in terms of NFT lending, but yeah, the team, team seems impressive and I mean, they seem to be building quite quick. So yeah, I'm excited about it. That's awesome. I think you're on the ground floor of a really cool concept and that it will only embolden your actual business. So it's, it's really cool. How do you go about like your taste making, um, or like asset curation within Koya? And how do you plan on continuing to do that into the future? Because I, I sort of see two different like possible outcomes, which would be like one is a community generated, you know, like the community wants to buy this. So they go and buy it together uh, versus like, you know, we are really good at picking out specific dark liquors that we think we'll appreciate over time. Um, and then there's also, you know, the consideration of who's going to be right more often and in total dollar return. Uh, or pound return <laughs> uh, we're, no, we're, for we're that pricing, asset. We're pricing in stable coins, so everything's in USDC. Um, so you're, you're right on the dollars. Um, in terms of the, the curation, so there's a couple of ways we think about this. At the moment, we think it's most sensible to keep it relatively curated. And the way we're doing that is working with experts in each asset class. So we've got a whiskey expert, we've got a watch expert, and they basically work with us to help curate these assets. So they're experts in their own field, they're well connected to the industry and also have the ability to, to access supply and source it, which is really important. And the idea is as we add more assets, we would add a respective asset class expert in each of those. And they will also be helping us generate content as well. Cause I think the education piece, certainly in Europe is still lacking. We need to do a lot more education about these assets and really like, I guess, help people see them as not only investable asset classes, but understand, I guess, the risks and the opportunities and, and why they're interesting and why they could be complementary to an existing portfolio um, and why they might be suitable for some people and not for others. Um, so that's one thing. I think we're starting very curated and using experts to do that. That community piece you touched on, I think is really powerful. And ultimately I'd actually would probably be my preference long-term, like having almost like mini DAOs spun up, right? Let's say you've got a load of trainer experts, that are just like you know, they're in the community, they're in the discord and they are you know, they just got the finger on the pulse and there's more people than we could employ, let's say, and you could, you could add this for every asset class, right? Little nodes of individuals who just really get it and really passionate about these things. And we could then essentially be the facilitator from a custody and a technology perspective of, you know, enabling their dreams, right? Like having the world's greatest sneaker collection that they're like trading through and, you know, everyone's involved. And uh, I think that could be really powerful. So uh, longer term, I think certainly with the crypto spin that to me, it makes a lot more sense, but I don't think starting there necessarily makes sense. What have been your avenues, uh, successful and unsuccessful, for acquiring users to come on this platform, participate, and discover? Because there's, you know, a new spin up with a bunch of buzzwords every day in the space. So how do you kind of convince people that yours is not just a spin up with buzzwords? It's it's useful. It's real. It's a legitimate team, and you should come and try it. And this is worth trying instead of trying the ten other things that popped up today. Yeah. So I think first off, like we are still very early and we're still testing these channels. So I think if we, we chat again in six months, I'll probably have a much better answer. Um, but I mean, I think going after the a captive audience is already interested in this. Um, newsletters are, you know, a, a good example of that. Um, and, you know, actually tapping into the community that's already looking at alternative assets. And in terms of sort of the target customer profile, it's sort of 25 to 45, let's say probably sort of middle career and yeah, they, they already have an interest in these things. Maybe they've already got a passion in watches or already got a passion in whiskey. 
um, and they probably already invest. General social advertising as well, sort of pay-per-click type models seem to be working. But I think the strategy longer term will be more around, as I mentioned, the education and community piece. And I think podcasts are a great, great way of doing that, right? In terms of actually getting you know, users to convert, I think clearly trust is a really important element here because we are ultimately holding real assets. And until we can totally decentralize that process and make it trustless by using a third-party custodian entirely, I think, you know, users have to believe that we're real and that, you know, we have the assets. Um, so making sure our faces are visible, trying to do video content and actually engaging with the community and, you know, willing to do calls with the community and things like that. And I guess just making it very clear that we're here. I think, you know, we've been backed by some great investors as well in Europe, um, CCAM being one of them. And I think that helps as well. So that PR angle is also, I think, quite important as well. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you could build this business undoxed. Uh, I don't, I don't yeah. think people would trust it. Um, how has it been a challenge for you with like Brexit and not being a part of the European Union and having to sort of reconcile these two regulatory frameworks? Has that been a problem or, or, or are they very different? How does that look? Yeah, so it's, it's certainly more of a challenge. I mean, we are sort of I guess, dispersed around Europe as a team anyway. So we have that sort of cross and actually that the primary business is, is being run out of Europe. So I think certainly from a, a crypto regulation perspective, it's still very early. It's not really clear where things are going. And it looks likely that the UK will sort of take a different approach to Europe, which isn't particularly helpful. So I'd say it's obviously adds friction to everything. And I would much rather just a harmonized set of global rules, to be honest. I think you know, it would just be a lot easier for everyone um, and clarity, but you know, at the moment, it seems like we're diverging. The UK is diverging more from the EU, um, but at the moment, things are pretty similar. I mean, most financial regulation was spearheaded by the UK and implemented in Europe, and most things are still basically identical. But things are changing, and I think over time they will diverge more. But ultimately, it just depends who's who's in government. But on the crypto side, it's something we're keeping a very close eye on, of course. And I I hope that you know over the next sort of four to five years that a framework is established that's so it's just fair, transparent, and hopefully harmonized across the EU as well as the UK. But I'm sure there will be some, some differences. This is very speculative and, you know, you can answer it however you'd like, but, you know, I was looking through the platform and seeing some of the different things that are for sale. And you brought this up at the very beginning that, you know, you're a big fan of Moonbirds. Just what do you think, like long-term, medium-term, the, you know, when we zoom out on this moment and we see that this, this Moonbird picture, and you can introduce Moonbirds to people who don't know what they are, is like, $60,000 or whatever the price was. And, you know, this Rolex, 25 years old, special color edition, whatever, is like $25,000. And it's like, for a lot of people that just, I mean, for me, I'm in the space, I've been working in the space for almost a full year, and it still doesn't like totally register like that that seems like a healthy long-term uh, price dynamic for this photo. Like, how do you just think about this Rolex, which is like has a 250-year history, maybe I'm sounding like a boomer or not, but like this thing that's definitively been valuable for so long, and then just this photo that was brought into existence recently, just so, so very few platforms like list both real-world assets and digital assets, so like the prices of digital assets. And then, of course, right, most people list them like in ETH-denominated terms. So it's like, well, this one's 10 and this one's 12, whatever. But it's like when you spell it out in USDC terms and there's just this huge disparity uh, between a Moonbird and a Rolex or a car or the $30,000 of, of whiskey. So just what are like your general thoughts on, I guess, asset value? And Kyle's going to jump in here, I think, yeah, with, I mean, with the watch. Just the other thing I was going to say is the Rolex has precious metals in it too. 
So it's like, you know, there's obviously a tangible value to it as well. And it tells the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you make some valid points and we're certainly cognizant that we need to be careful around positioning, you know, people who are only interested in real world assets versus those that might also be interested in, in digital assets. I think we really are in that experimentation phase still and seeing what resonates with the audience, trying different marketing channels and also tapping into different groups and communities. And I think there is a place for both of these assets. At the end of the day, it's all speculative and one is just a lot more volatile than the other. So I think from just to, I guess, to introduce the Moonbirds, um, it's an NFT project um, that was launched earlier this year um, by the Proof Collective. Um, and they sort of, that was spearheaded by a guy called Kevin Rose. Uh, and the Proof Collective is essentially a, a membership community, thousand NFTs um, that would grant access to a number of special perks. One of them has, has been Moonbird access and will drop to this 10,000 NFTs. And those have held their value extremely well. And the, the community that's formed around that, it goes back to, I think it was Kevin Kelly's 1000 True Fans essay, just building a really strong core community of brand advocates. And I think in that respect, Moonbirds having sort of come from that just has a very different vibe versus a lot of other projects. And I think there is a long-term plan there that will be delivered upon and there will be value given to that community. So I think for me, it's an exercise in brand building, but starting from sort of crypto native space versus, you know, traditional brand then entering the NFT space, let's say. So uh, some people just won't get it, right? It just seems crazy. And I think a lot of people are in that camp, but the people who do get it want access to this sort of asset, but can't afford to go and drop $60,000 in one um, or only a select few can. So we want to make sure we open up the market, not only to people who are interested in, let's say, Rolex, but also people who are interested in these digital assets. And I think the demographic and the target audience is quite different, but I think it's okay at the moment, as long as we believe from a curation perspective that there is value, you know, in the asset. But there's no doubt that from a volatility perspective, something like the NFT, the, the Moonbird will be much more volatile than something like a, a watch or a whiskey. That's for sure. And I think that, you know, you've reminded me of something I've forgotten before, but a lot of the way I've explained NFTs before, like why some of them are useful is, you know, you're betting on, the value of membership in a certain group and certain groups membership is extremely expensive because it's, you know, a group of people. And if every person in that group is, you know, a decamillionaire successful entrepreneur, then, you know, for the right person, it's a no brainer to pay $60,000 to have access to that group. And, you know, but it, I, I just thought the, the disparity of the visual layout, right? Like for, I don't want to use the word, like it snaps people out of the hysteria. Cause right. Like that's sort of what happens in like these run-ups is like, you know, you just look at something only in its own context and you can never connect the dots to like the outside world. And you just, these two things that should be all compared in the same way or not compared in the same way. Cause like you turn on your crypto brain and you go like full in that mode and you just are on open sea and you don't know how much time has passed and whatever. And then you go back to the world and like, you're looking at like, you know, the piece of beef that's like $6 instead of five. And you're like, that blows you out. So I think what's interesting is, you know, you're one in a more interesting juxtaposition of fractionalizing real world assets that I think makes a lot of people, which I think is a net positive, right? Like think about the whole picture because they tie things together that they previously were not tying together. And I think that like for a lot of people will be really constructive with, I guess, making responsible decisions about their like finances. Yeah, definitely. I, I think ultimately people need to understand where, where they want to put their money, right? Like 
like we need to educate them. It's got to be their own decision. And, you know, I wouldn't advise anyone investing at all if they don't understand, don't feel comfortable with it, right? Regardless of whether that's traditional stock market or, or, or something in the alternative space. So I think the key here really though is that the people that will be buying a fraction of one of these assets will likely understand it, right? They'll have some knowledge. They'll, they'll, you know, I think it's very unlikely would convince someone who doesn't, you know, doesn't get NFTs that they should buy a fraction of a Moonbird and vice versa, maybe on a watch, right? So I think there's already an understanding or an interest in the underlying asset. And that's what gets them to convert and, and want a piece of the action in the first place. And I think on that basis, it's, it feels quite a natural progression. I think the, with some education on the way, yeah, it can be very interesting for a lot of different people. How are you at Koya presently and in the future going to make the selling decisions? And is that, is that a centralized decision? Is that a community collective decision? Yeah. And then yeah, if it's a community collective decision, I have questions about it afterward. Sure. So it's, you're absolutely right. It's a community decision. Um, so we as Koya do not make any decisions regarding the assets in terms of sort of these key decisions, like when, when they're going to be sold or for what price. So the way it works is we, like, if we get a buyout offer for a particular asset, we can put a vote to users and the vote is based on a 60% majority of the people who come back within a certain time frame. So we haven't actually gone through a voting process yet. So there might be small tweaks along the way, but it's a 60% majority, seven days to respond. And the majority is taken on those that come back to us. And it would be yes, sell, no, or counter. And we can iterate from there. Um, so we'll be managing the actual transaction, but it's the community that's actually, I guess, making the decision on the asset. Is that vote by equity stake or is that a one uh, share per vote? Uh, that might be the, the same outcome. Um, yeah, so it's pro rata based on the number of NFTs you have. So let's say hypothetically it was 100 NFTs, one NFT would be a 1% vote. If you've got two NFTs, it'd be 2% vote. So how could you stop someone from buying it at a 60% discount? Because if yes. you, if you buy up to 60% of the value, you can, I mean, you know, you, you thought of this for sure, but what, what is your answer? Cause I, I know a lot of projects, like this is a, a big question. Yeah. So we have a, like a reasonable tolerance. Um, so we'll have like a fair market value and if it's not within that tolerance, then I guess a question is essentially raised to make sure there isn't a bad actor at play. We also do KYC on the person who's buying it, um, to make sure again, they're not sort of in cahoots with, with other people. So there's no perfect solution to this yet, but it's more, I guess, a common sense approach and making sure that, you know, all our users are protected on the platform. Well, I think we'll ask a couple quick questions and then wrap it up. What are, this is uh, not a quick question, but overall, like, you know, we've talked a lot about newer aspects of the, you know, blockchain economy, web three economy. How would you describe your thoughts on just pure good old Bitcoin? We've seen a lot of, I guess, the narrative in the market was that Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum were, you know, we're going to be, well, certainly Bitcoin was going to be a safe haven asset, right? It was digital gold and that didn't pan out um, over the past sort of couple of months. I think longer term, there's definitely a place for, for crypto in everyone's portfolio. I think that over time, as more and more people come into the ecosystem, Bitcoin just seems to be the natural starting point. It's also the most liquid asset which is, I think, why we're seeing such a high correlation to traditional markets, right? It's just become a risk on asset, basically. Um, I think that might decouple over time as other people start, for example, entering via Ethereum and other assets more natively. Um, but until 
Bitcoin loses that, I guess, initial entry point for most people, it will probably still be extremely volatile and also sort of correlated to the rest of crypto assets as well as other markets. Long term, I'm bullish, um, but I, and I think it will slowly transition into more digital gold. But right now, I think like the rest of the crypto space, it's, it's all pretty speculative and pretty volatile. Um, but yeah, bullish over the long term. Love to hear it. What is your favorite thing to cook and your favorite thing to eat? Ooh, it's a good one. Favorite thing to eat, probably a good lasagna. Favorite thing to cook, probably grilled fish on a barbecue. What was the first thing you said? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, just a good homemade lasagna. Lasagna. Okay, okay. Got it. That's interesting. So you live in the UK, and what is your favorite non non UK country in Europe? Um, I'm going to say Portugal. Um, but my other half's in Portugal, so I'm probably biased. But yeah, I love the sea. So surfing, food's great there, wine's great. So yeah. Is there a specific city? Not where they're from, just like the best spot to visit. I think Lisbon's great, but Porto's great too. So they're the two main cities. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd probably go probably go to either Lisbon or Porto if you want a good time, yeah. How would you th describe the shift in kind of team psychology, collective psychology of like other builders over the past maybe three months since things have gone from like definitively, you know, this is like super cycle, this is the bull market that never ends to kind of like a pretty dramatic crash in a lot of assets, like the depegging of Terra Luna and like a bunch of really dramatic negative events happening at once. Like how's that affected your personal psychology, team psychology, and then also just like what you've noticed, cause I'm sure you're in a community, right? You're an advisor to another startup in the space. So what have you observed personally as like a builder of early stage companies in a pretty volatile time? I think it depends what stage the business is, right? If you're very early, sort of pre-seed, seed, it doesn't really matter. Like the cycle's so long, like you're not going to exit for at least a few years, if not sort of five to 10 years. So <clears throat> I think you can, you can almost weather a whole, whole cycle. I mean, historically, some of the best companies have been built during a recession anyway. I think it's probably healthy, right? You're taking some of the fat of the ecosystem and certainly in certain areas like fintech valuations did look a bit silly. Um, so I think it's probably a healthy correction and I mean, critically in the crypto space, I mean, as you guys would have seen, there's been a lot of funds being raised over the past couple of months. I mean, A16Z just raised a gigantic one, but they're not alone, right? There's sort of half a billion funds popping up left, right and center, and there's a lot of dry powder to deploy. And I think, you know, the tide is still very much rising in the Web3 crypto space. So yeah, I'm, I think pretty positive. Uh, I think if you're slightly later trying to raise a series A, maybe, you know, fundraising is going to be more difficult. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, we didn't really go into your background as an equity trader, but I think, you know, you might have an interesting perspective from that's determined by that. I think, you know, I wonder where all of that money is going to go. I mean, 30, I, I, the last time I saw like the statistics on the amount of VC capital in, in, um, the web three space, it was like $30 billion or something like that. And I, I'm sure it's gone up since then. And it's like, how many deals can that money be chasing and how is that, you know, necessarily healthy for the ecosystem, given the liquidity of the creators of these protocols and, and, you know, some of them aren't doxxed and like, I think some of it, you know, you got to make bets in VC, but I, I don't understand really how raising that much money makes sense. And I, I know there's not really a question in there. I think, a more interesting thing that I'd like to hear you speak on is like just the macro environment as somebody who has, you know, been in banks and, and hedge funds, like where's your head at with the global macro environment in terms of 
you know, inflation, monetary printing, equity values skyrocketing, going down, like just kind of paint me a picture. Yeah, I and mean, it's probably worth saying I've not got my head in macro <clears throat> as much now as I did, obviously, but um, I'm more into sort of, <clears throat> you know, the NFT space. But I'd say that I think certainly inflation stuff is real, right? People are seeing that, like you go to the petrol pump or you go to the supermarket, you are very much seeing prices increase, like it's hitting the real consumer. I would say, though, that a lot of these inflation numbers are, you know, it's a change of prices over time. And we're comparing like a very like a I guess a lockdown period or very close to being a lockdown period with a reopening economy, obviously the Russia um, Ukraine scenarios put a lot of pressure certainly on things like wheat and, and sort of food and oil pricing, which isn't helping. I wouldn't be surprised if we do have a mild recession in the US in the next sort of couple of years. I don't think it's going to be the same as sort of financial crisis. I think, you know, a lot of people in, in the markets have been quite bearish for a number of years, right? Everyone was waiting for it to happen, waiting for the music to stop, but the money just kept being printed, right? And asset values kept going up. So I, th I think certainly some of this correction is relatively healthy. It will be really interesting to see how the Fed play things, right? Like um, the dovish versus hawkish stance over the next couple of months. I think that they say, you know, the market won't necessarily work to tell, but I, I would imagine that you know, if they, they won't raise rates necessarily as much as um, some people are concerned they will, right? Like, I, I think, I think they're going to keep going, but I, I think it's a healthy correction. And I, I don't really see this being, you know, a doomsday scenario, you know, obviously some tech stocks have, have been hit particularly hard. Um, but, you know, I, I think over the long term, I, I'm not too, you know, too concerned about it, to be honest. And it's obviously an unfortunate um, sort of read through for tech company valuations. But as I mentioned, I think a lot of that is sort of almost a healthy correction, like readjusting people's multiples and their expectations for an exit, certainly in the VC community. And I think that was really needed, to be honest, because I didn't see how far that could, could keep going. Um, so, yeah, I'd say, I'd say moderately bullish on the, um, the macro outlook. I mean, I think all eyes are on the Fed, really. So Europe is expected to raise rates tail end of this year as well. First time we've got a while. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see a lot of volatility in the markets and maybe remain pretty range bound, to be honest. Um, but overall, I'm not, not concerned that we're going to have some sort of doomsday scenario or, you know, see a gigantic crash. Maybe I'm a contrarian indicator. <laughs> I'll come back and revisit this conversation in six months. Yeah, I'll give you one more question and then we can sign off. You had just said that, you know, you haven't had your head in a Mac, or you've mostly had your head in, you know, the NFT collectible universe. What would be one more shout out to like an interesting project you found recently, or you feel strongly is really interesting uh, that you'd encourage people to check out, whether it's just for fun, not necessarily because you think there's upside there, just you like what they're doing and think it's worth reading about at minimum. Without saying core, of course, because I think that's, that's one change, right? We're, we're seeing a lot more like, I guess, NFTs with utility. And I think there's very much a place for that. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate the project, but I think it's worth checking out just because it's a bit crazy. Um, it's for the culture. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. It's a, it was a free mint announced sort of partially as a joke. Uh, I think it was middle of last week and pretty much within 24 hours, I think had about 70,000 people in the discord and everyone's chanting on Twitter spaces for the culture, for the culture. I think it's just a very interesting, almost like social experiment, seeing how people react and how these communities are being formed. And it's like viral marketing that like would have almost been impossible to come up with if you're, you know, a business. So I wouldn't necessarily advocate that, but just as like, almost like a thought experiment on the NFT space. I think that's really interesting to look at and, you know, maybe, maybe they shoot up in price. Maybe they, they absolutely 
tank, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I'd say more just a community building exercise um, for the good and for the bad. It's, it's an interesting one. Just have a look at. Well, that's exactly what I asked for. I said, not one that you think there's financial upsides for just something that's interesting to look at. And uh, yeah. that sounds like a, I don't want to call it. It's just interesting. I, I have no idea. I want to look into it now. So that, that's perfect. Uh, if people want to as well, check out the two projects you're involved with, as well as maybe follow you personally across the internet, where would you like to send people who listen to this episode till the end and uh, want to go do something next? Yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter at Dickie Draper. And of course, come over to Coir. It's joinquire, J-O-I-N, um.com And we're also on Twitter and all socials as well. So yeah. Oh, great. This has been a great time. Thanks so much for recording with us. Amazing. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. That's going to close out this conversation with Richard from Akoya. Three quick takeaways for me. First of all, I really like how we asked him some questions about short-term current events, just things that have happened in the crypto market recently. And he basically was like, I don't really care. Not too caught up in the noise, just building. I really like that energy. He's focused on solving the problem in front of him and not letting the chaos of the internet and headlines, et cetera, and prices mess him up. So that's pretty sweet. I also like the juxtaposition during hype cycles, uh, talking about how so few marketplaces list both real world items, real world luxury items and digital assets in the same spot and really seeing them next to each other. Like, all right, for $20,000, you could have a fraction of this thing called a Moonbird, or you could have a full Rolex. And in some cases, some of these NFTs are worth like four Rolexes. So I think that juxtaposition helps people see things clearly, kind of evaluate things from a new perspective. And then the third one is just how Richard's the first one to bring this idea to a new market. So there's a lot of fractional collectible marketplaces in the United States. Uh, what's the one that's not coming to mind right now? The one that's coming to mind is Rally Road. That's the one that's coming to mind. Anyway, there's concepts like that in our market in the United States, but he's got a whole opportunity by being the first person to deal with going through all the loopholes of paperwork and the, the headache of bringing it to a new market. But if he does well, he'll be rewarded for it. So that's what I have to say for this episode with Richard. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you want to get in touch with us, say, hey, give us any feedback, do anything like that. We're pretty easy to find online and there's links in the show notes to make that even easier for you. Make sure you're subscribed so you know about the next episode. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, Espresso Displays. If you want to have the superpower of taking two screens anywhere you go, I would check out Espresso Displays. There's links to that in the show notes as well. Hope you're subscribed so you know about the next episode. I'll see you there. Bye-bye.